Welcome, welcome, welcome back to week seven now here at Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. I want to begin by thanking you for tuning in and following along this week once again as we continue telling the story of Tara Louise Baker. Now, if you missed it, I wanted to tell you that on Sunday we were able to release some of the exclusive audio moments from Tara's funeral. You can listen to this wherever you listen to Classic City Crime, and it's titled Season 1 Exclusive, Tara Baker's Funeral. I've got to tell you, it was super healing for me, actually, to listen to this, um, and I hope that it'll be healing for all of you who are listening, who have grown to love Tara through this podcast, and yes, for those of you who knew her before that tragic day in 2001. You know at this point who Tara was, and you didn't have to take my word for it. I brought in Tara's family, her friends, her classmates, and I've talked to many sources which not only told of Tara's life, but also gave us a good look into her last days and the days that followed her murder on 160 Fawn Drive here in Athens. Now, if my guess is correct, I'm pretty much sure that I know where all of you are at as you're listening. You're on the edge of your seat. You're waiting for me to dig deep into every theory and possible suspect that the police and, yes, me, Cameron J., have looked at, too. In fact, you've probably been a little impatient, wondering why I've taken so much care and so long to tell you about who Tara was and how much she was loved. There's a reason for that. It is imperative that we begin from Tara outward and not with the suspects. So let me say to each of you who are listening in each week, who have followed along, who have stuck it out this far, thank you. Thank you so much for your patience in this process. Now let's dig in. There were several suspects that were mentioned early on that you heard last episode from reporter Joe Johnson, who covered the case for many years. There was a classmate of Tara's who fellow students and sources say was definitely infatuated with her, who went to odd lengths to impress her and to gain her attention. I wonder, did he finally take these advances too far? Then there was the co-worker at the law firm, whose sources say had a secret life and who admired Tara greatly. Did he make a move that wasn't received well? It's been bothering me. There's the boyfriend. Had something recently gone wrong? Had Tara decided to go a new way? Tara also recently changed her last name. Could someone from her dad's family have been angered by this? Or maybe it was someone she didn't know one bit. You see, there's so many things that are at play here. So many people. We hear the phrase whodunit so often, and that's really what this is a case of. The list of hmms and whats go on and on and on in this case. In fact, it's what, apart from the investigative mishaps, makes this case so difficult. There are several suspects, as you will learn, who all had odd or just coincidental things going on in their lives that would make you pause for just a second to say, aha, aha, they did it. But that is, until you read the next file, and then you change your mind again and again. That's what it's been like for me, and that's what I've wanted to prevent some of you from having to experience. It's a constant back and forth, and I won't deny that I've lost a little bit of sleep here and there over it. As you can see, there are a lot of possible suspects and a lot of possible theories, and I'll have you know that I have leads on every single one of them, and we will be now, week by week, taking a look at those and the theories in question. Now, I'm going to try to do my best to remain as unbiased as possible as we go there. I'm going to let you know of the questions that troubled me with each possible scenario as I play devil's advocate with myself. And I'm also going to present to you some new information that's been presented to me through interviews, through statements, through off-the-record sources that you have never seen or heard from before. 
And I want to remind all of you one more time, as we move forward in this thing together, names and other details might be changed to protect the individuals involved. And there's a reason for that, remember? There are many people in this pool of suspects. You just heard me name a few. That means that there are several people in that pool who are innocent. And that is important to me, too. From the beginning, I've wanted to set up the story perfectly for you and for me to be able to explore each of these leads together week by week, 20 years later. It's why I talked to the arson investigator, Tom, back in episode 5. He helped us better understand how these types of investigations should work. So that brings me to episode 7. From the beginning, I've wanted to set up this story perfectly for us to be able to fairly explore each of these leads together from nearly 20 years ago. It's why I talked to arson investigator. You'll remember Tom from episode 5. He helped us better understand how fire investigations should work and what crime scenes involving fire often look like. Well, in this episode, we're going to take it to a new level. We're going to talk with two new experts that I now consider to be friends. You'll hear from someone formerly in the FBI with a resume you can't deny is built on experience and grit. You'll also hear from a criminal psychologist who will discuss his first-glance thoughts on Tara's case. And we'll finally examine one person of interest you've all been asking about. Buckle up, y'all. There's a lot of information to uncover as we begin to answer the who. And wouldn't you agree that it would be better for us to understand the thinking and the mindset behind someone who might have been involved in this crime? Or what possibly could have motivated someone to take Tara's life? I think answering those questions are the ethical thing for us to begin doing. And we're going to have these experts talk with us through these details together. This is Classic City Crime, Week 7. I'm Cameron J. Alrighty, it is Thursday. Let's do this. Now, the first interview is one of the most thought-provoking and most intriguing I've had in the way of experts thus far. Meet Mr. Jeffrey Rennick, who retired from the FBI after 30 years of service, and he's been involved in complex investigations. Once got a serial killer to confess before people even knew what that term meant, actually. And the resume goes on and on. In fact, I'm just going to stop there, and I'll let Jeff tell you more about his career to establish his true credibility. My name is Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, L, Reinick, R-I-N is in November, E-K. I was in the FBI for 30 years. Um, I served in the Chicago Division, the New York office, and then the Sacramento Division for my last 15 years. I was the Crimes Against Children Coordinator. I was the Kidnapping Coordinator. I was um, the Primary uh, Profiler. Um, I uh, also was a sniper on the SWAT team. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess there's a lot more. Now, I've got to say that Jeff was a really tough person to talk to initially. Um, Not that he wasn't approachable, but I had never spoken with a former member of the FBI. And not only was I feeling a little out of my league, but he cautioned me from the start. But as I slept on Jeff's words and tried to process them and tried to understand from his perspective and his expert opinion, he actually really started to make sense to me. And I think Jeff's going to make a lot of sense to all of you, too. I feel, you know, there's a, there's a high level, I think there's a strong probability that he didn't go there, whoever it was that went there that night, and I don't think you should rule out a woman, because we don't know if she had any problems with women, or, or, we don't know, it's amazing what you don't know about people, so. 
is is the stabbing to stop the screaming is the strangulation to inflict death is the strangulation to inflict um suffering mm-hmm. because people sexual sadists for instance are sexually aroused from suffering and so they'll inflict pain and and discomfort on a victim to become sexually aroused by watching the reaction of the victim mm. and these would all appear to be something that they're not so I, I don't know how much you looked me up or how much you know about me but um if you look i i am responsible for getting a confession from the serial killer mm-hmm. when no one knew the serial killer was a serial killer and in that instance the management the fbi management were treating the case as if it was a kidnapping robbery. I believed it was sexually motivated from the conditions of the crime scenes. Mm. Um, and I was actually removed from the case because of that. And eventually um, the offender ended up confessing to me unexpectedly and it was all about sex. So um, it, it, you never can uh, predict but i believe murders like this begin with a sexual motivation and that's why it's very important to know the condition of the victim when she was examined and to try and determine what happened to her during the course of the event and when it happened mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's we've seen uh, there are people that have been stabbed after they've been dead there are people that will have sex with bodies after they're dead there's a whole plethora of behavior that makes no sense to a person who thinks normally. I mentioned earlier that it was really important for me to start this podcast talking about Tara and her life, not with the suspects. And Jeff actually agreed with this approach. It gave me a huge sigh of relief. I believe when I do these investigations, I start in the very center with the victim, and then I work my way out. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to focus on any one person mm-hmm. because it could lead you down a rabbit hole. And by the time you realize you're down the rabbit hole, the real person has, has gained more distance or you've lost opportunities. A lot of you reached out to me over the last few weeks. You wanted to know about overkill. What does that mean? And this is where Jeff kind of schooled me, in a nice way, of course, on why overkill is not always the case, even when you and I might think that it is obvious. In any situation, until you understand the mechanics of what happened, uh, you know, people can say overkill, but in reality, if you've had, if Tara fought for her life, it might have forced the offender to, you know, make all kinds of attempts to get her under control, which we could see as overkill. So I would caution anybody on coming to any uh, summarizations of anything unless it's checked in and investigated. So all of this is really good, right? And that's most of what Jeff and I discussed when we first talked, apart from a few details that you know it, I have to save for later. But he texted me the next day and he wanted to follow up with me and this was interesting. So I asked if he'd be willing to talk again and he gave me a shout. The thing that really bothers me about this is I think it's just really the police department's been treating the family. Just uh, I just cannot 
you know, I, that is why, you know, I'm thinking about it so much because uh, if it were something where I thought the police were addressing it or that the family's being well addressed, you know, I, I'd probably be okay not thinking about it. But mm-hmm. um, things like this really eat at me. Jeff was calling because Tara's case, actually, in the short time we had discussed it, within 24 hours, had been eating at him, just like it's been eating at me and us for seven weeks, just like it's gotten to the Baker family and all of her friends that are listening over the past 20 years. In this second conversation, I could hear the passion in Jeff's voice, not only for what he does, but for the truth, for answers, and for what we're doing here for Tara. I could hear his compassion for her and her family. So after this, Jeff gave me a lightning round of questions, and I felt like I was in the hot seat for just a moment. I didn't know if sweat was about to stop dripping down my forehead, in fact. Um, But he specifically started asking me about the scene, and I told him many of the details that I've shared with all of you regarding the fire, what we know about the investigation, and some of the new information that's been brought to me by sources. And here's what he put together after that lightning round of questions. Okay, so that tells me that whoever this was did not come there with anything of his own. And why I find that important is because when you have people who are serial offenders and are doing this for, let's say, a sexual fantasy, Mm -hmm. they will put together a kit. They will come prepared Mm -hmm. and they will know exactly the progression that they want to pursue or how they intend it to move forward. To me, the more I consider this, the more I realize that then, you know, the idea of starting the fire with a blanket and just putting a, a, a burning blanket in a room and leaving it and closing the door, to me, the offender is telling you that whatever happened with evidence is in that room. Mm-hmm. And, and so that just to me is just very compelling that the person who did this, um, probably is not very good at it. Mm-hmm. And I would consider the ligature and the stab wounds more as a uh, as components to a death uh, as opposed to finding value in the means themselves. Mm-hmm. If it was a serial offender, he would have a certain way of doing certain things. As an example, in the Ukraine there was a guy named Chikatelli. He was called the Beast of the Ukraine. And he killed 75 people, and what he and 53 of them were children. And what he would do was pick up children riding the train rails alone and offend against them. And in his case, his sexual fantasy or sexual need was that uh, he would... Uh, be on top of the victim, stabbing them in their chest and heart as he was reaching his sexual climax. Mm. So that was his sexual fantasy. And as a result of that, when he came, he brought his own stuff. In the Yosemite case, which is the one that I'm credited with, um, he had put together a whole kit for uh, doing his crime. So by the time uh, he had abducted and murdered his fourth victim, um, you know, it was very clear that he had a backpack that he put together with the tools he needed to conduct his crime. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, Cameron, it sounds like the guy didn't come or the person didn't come with anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that causes me to suspect that they didn't come with an intent to commit 
be a crime in the sense of it wasn't pre-planned, which causes me to believe. And, and I think you mentioned that there was no indication of a break-in, which means that she might have let the person in. And it just, it, to me, I, I feel very, I think there's a, a stronger probability that she knew this person and whoever this person was, she and this person were capable of reaching a high emotional level. Mm-hmm. 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 Told you this guy's good. Now, I want to talk about Jeff's book, um, and not because I'm trying to promote it as some trade-off for the interview. I admire Jeff a lot. I admire his work, and more importantly, I admire that he followed up with me the second day and was so helpful and wanted to help me help all of you understand better. Jeff's had a long career. He's seen a lot of things, and I actually think this book could be helpful for a lot of you who are listening to this podcast. Take a listen. came out in July of 2018. Um, I had a very, my wife likes to say I suffered a successful career. I've experienced a lot of um, confessions from people. I have a unique way of interviewing in in 2000, or actually in 1999, uh, it led to the discovery of a serial killer that no one realized was a serial killer. And, uh, but from dealing with all of the children that were victims, it affected me and my emotional welfare and that affected my family. So after I retired, I, as at the request of my family, I kind of wrote an accounting of myself and the transitional cases that I worked. Um, I, and uh, when my wife read it, she believed that it might help others, especially first responders and, and investigators. So I, uh, I gave, I was okay with them using it to write a book and book came out and the, the New York Times seems to like it. It's a very unique book considered true crime. It's actually my story from my mouth and it's me talking to my family so whoever reads it feels a very close connection because I'm, I'm actually talking to them but it's actually done good it's it's helped uh several investigators with their struggles one investigator in particular it uh, caused them to abandon their efforts to take their own life and so uh, i feel like it's 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 been my wife was hoping it would help people and it's done that so we're ahead of the game with that Good. And what's the name of the book, Jeff? The name of the book is In the Name of the Children. And the first cha- every chapter in the book is named with a victim. The first chapter is my name because there's some background to me. And then the last chapter is my wife and son's names. And we, um, I basically discuss what I observed the working these cases did to me that affected them Hmm. and then the cases themselves is the uh, document the actual obtaining of the confession that led to the discovery of the serial killer you can find jeffrey's book on amazon i've ordered mine and i hope that you will too and please please reach out to me if you read it and let me know what you think i'll be sure to pass the message along when we come back it's time to hear from a criminal psychologist who will discuss what he thinks after taking a brief look at tara's case Does he think this could be someone she knew, didn't know? What was the psychology behind this kind of crime and more? We'll be right back. 
Friends and clients call Tina McCullough the golden goddess. This week, she's a sponsor of Classic City Crime. From property to pottery, Tina literally sells dirt and delights in sharing her works of art and helping Athenians buy or sell their dream home. If you are searching, selling, or looking to invest in property for your future, Tina's here to help you. And you can snag some great pottery for the new place while you're at it. I recently snagged some, and they're perfect, literally perfect, for gifts. Visit her online at selling-georgia-dreams.com for real estate inquiries or at bluebellgallery.net for art and more. All right. Thanks again for the sponsorship, Tina, and to all of our sponsors who have joined us thus far. And if you're interested in helping us tell Tara's story, visit us at classiccitycrime.com slash sponsorship. I now want to turn it over, though, to Dr. Michael Parati. He's a forensic psychologist out of California who actually hosts a podcast, too. More on that later, but he, much like Jeffrey, has quite the background. My background, well, I have three specialties. Okay. Uh, I have, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, a so clinical psychology, so diagnosis and treatment of mental disorders, mm-hmm. uh, neuropsychology, expert analysis of brain injuries, concussions, neurobehavioral disorders, mm-hmm. uh, seizures, seizure disorders, and the third one is uh, forensic psychology. All for an expert against the court. Mm-hmm. And I also, I also um, assist with the Sheriff's Reserve with some things out here. Mm-hmm. Did some, sometimes did some 5150s and voluntary holds and helped to you know, evaluate people on the field and, you know, teach and I do research, you know. So Classic City Crime, a lot of you listening right now are Bulldog fans. The University of Georgia is located right here in our beautiful city of Athens. And Dr. Parati responded to my email with Go Dogs, and the first time we talked, he told me about his first experience eating grits. And after these initial introductions were given, and I found out that maybe Dr. Parati is a little more of a southerner than he thought at heart, he began telling me and reviewing with me the two types of violence that can actually occur in these cases. Take a listen. There's two types, two broad types of violence. There's affective, which is um, emotion-driven, psychological conflict-driven. What the public knows is crime of passion. And then the other is instrumental violence. Those are the people, they can be paranoid or have different kinds of pathology, you know, and they, they set up people, they, you know, they, they do calculated killings, they're calculated planning, you know, they tend to be less neurologically impaired than the brain functioning than affective killers. Now, at recording time, it's important to note Dr. Parati wasn't able to take an in-depth look at all of the evidence in Tara's case, but he knows the overarching timeline of what happened and what we know about the investigation, and he knows who some of the key suspects were early on and who I'm taking a look at now. I asked him what he thought about this crime. Was it committed by someone Tara knew or didn't know? We know now there was no forced entry, so that has many people thinking this was definitely someone Tara let in. But it also could have easily been someone who also had access, who might not have known Tara, right? Well, here's what the doctor said. Well, one thing that I noticed was, it's pretty, pretty crazy what happened to the evidence. There's, there's no chain of custody. But, yeah, in the, the 
the other thing is that um, trying to see um, where I saw that. Um, yeah, I think there was no forced entry. Mm-hmm. So that means that she she knew this person. Mm-hmm. Um, probably knew this person unless she left the door unlocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, poor thing. I would lean more towards someone who didn't know her myself from what I read. Oh yeah, I don't think they know her. We often hear the term crime of passion. Um, you, With that statement that you just made, do you think that that could or could not be the case here? I think it could be, yeah. Okay. From what I know about the evidence and so forth, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it could be a crime of passion, yeah. Which would doesn't necessarily have to be someone who knows the victim. Correct. Final thing here that someone asked me that I was just curious about, is there any specific type of psychology that you note about people who commit arson uh, yeah they um arson is connected with a lot of um anger con- conflicted anger mm-hmm. um i've seen people you know they feel alienated from society disconnected from society mm-hmm. and it's me against them and then they go out and set fires on fire um, I've seen people who feel injured in some sort of um, thing, maybe in the business area. And then they go out and, you know, they load up a vehicle and, you know, put incendiary things in it. And they just want to blow up buildings with thousands of people in it. You know? mm. So, um, psycho- you know, psychopathic um you know, little empathy for others, destroy destroy lots of structures and property and people. And, you know, also I've seen those people and I've, I've evaluated those people. And some of them are psychotic. Some of them are very mentally ill, mm-hmm. you know. So they have mental illness. They have paranoia. You know, they think people are after them and, you know, they're acting out and so forth, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, the burners on the stove were found, and they were not off? They were not off. It was an electric stove. Held it onto the stovetop until it lit fire, which the arson guy said would take about 2 to 13 minutes, depending on the material. But took that back to the room, threw it on the bed, left her body in the floor, um, and you know, uh, locked her bedroom door behind her and went out the window because the front door was still locked. Ah, now see, that that throws a different light onto it because Mm. that's an instrumental killer. So, you know, he was trying to cover his crime. Mm -hmm. He was trying to cover the crime. You know, that's what I think. So, you know, um, uh, but, you know, she had friends. Mm -hmm. She had no enemies, you know. So, see, well, the, yeah, the fire was not set directly to her body because they were probably trying to destroy any evidence in there, so forth, you know? Thanks again, Dr. Parati. And remember, I said he hosts a podcast, and I encourage all of you to, to check it out at Dr. M-I-C-H-A-E-L Parati, P-E-R-R-O-T-T-I dot com. Specifically, I'm a fan of episode three for good reason, CSI and forensic psychology. What's up with that? Thanks again to Jeffrey and Dr. Parati for talking to me. It truly opened my eyes to a lot of new ways of thinking and really helped me understand where we might can go next to effectively 
get justice for Tara. We can't just continue to talk about it. We have to put our words here to action. And that's one thing I promise to the Baker family and to all of you listening right now. All right. Are you ready for the first theory? Are you ready for one of the things that many of you have been asking about? Well, I think it's time to dispel one of those in this episode. Many of you have heard me talk about Tara's father, Mr. Lindsay Baker. Many of you have also heard me call him Tara's stepfather. And that is true. Tara's biological father is also the father to sister Meredith and brother Adam, and he was not heavily involved in the lives of his children. In adulthood, actually, Tara changed her last name from, get this, Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R, to Baker, B-A-K-E-R, just one letter of difference, to honor the life of Lindsay Baker, the man who had raised her and helped build for her a life for being the father Tara Meredith and Adam needed for many years. Here's where things about Tara's biological father, Mr. Barker, do become a little interesting. Not long before Tara was murdered, her biological father found out that she had changed her last name. Now, can you imagine? This surely didn't make Mr. Barker happy. And I must admit that when I first heard this story, like many of you, the stepfather thing, the not being in her life thing, the name change thing, I thought... Maybe there is something here. I wondered if the father might be mad at his daughter for changing her last name. That's a big deal to a lot of fathers. I reached more into this theory, and the most important thing to note here is that Mr. Barker is also father to Meredith and Adam, like I said. So both of them have no belief that he had any involvement in Tara's murder. And it is just important to note that Adam and Meredith changed their last names too. Further investigation by me proved that he was around five, six, pretty on the short side, and lived far away at the time of Tara's murder. And from the talks I've had and the resources I have gathered, I do not believe that it seems most investigators at the time, nor now, nor many people that have direct knowledge of this case, believe that this theory is highly likely. Is it an interesting theory? Absolutely. Do I think that it is likely? I personally do not. While finding out your daughter changed her last name can surely inspire a lot of emotions, and anyone that's had issues with their father knows how these situations can be, it does not make you a murderer, does it? It does not at all. I want to go back to Dr. Parati. He told me that, you know, he thought it could be someone Tara didn't know, but he had this important detail to share. But, um, I can't say who done it, although... Oh. Although my assistant's around here, she was saying, uh, she was saying, well, I think Steve did it. See, like I said, there are more suspects, more people in Tara's circle, the creepy classmate, the lustful lawyer, and yes, the boyfriend. We couldn't possibly cover them all in one episode, and I hope that you're okay with that because I want to give each avenue their due diligence, their due research, and their due evidence gathering. So that's why I've chosen in this episode this week to tell you more about who I know did not commit the crime. Many of you have asked about the father. And I wanted to talk with these experts to help us better understand the thought process and the type of person who might have committed this crime. I think it will be helpful to us as we move forward next week and in the weeks to come. We'll dive deeper next week as we continue to answer the two decades old question, who killed Tara Louise Baker? I'll see you next time on Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J. Co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime. Sign up for our Classic City Crimes Insider List and learn more about this case at ClassicCityCrime.com. For story tips on the Tara Baker story, email us at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com or call our tip line at 706-534-0025.